0: Father, we come before you asking for wisdom and guidance as we get into your word, knowing what your will is. That It's contained in the pages of scripture. and We had asked that we would not so frequently neglect it as would be the default position. We ask for your assistance, your prompting, your uh, direction, your insight, things that we can only learn by paying attention to your spirit as we dive into these verses here and we ask lord that you would help them to be effective in making a change that we might uh, be more like you rather than be more like the world we ask that you would accomplish this this morning as we go through your word in jesus name amen now, Second Corinthians, it becomes more prominent as to why First Corinthians was written because there was a lot of confusion inside the church. I think most of you are familiar with who the Judaizers were uh, Judaizers they would have started in Jerusalem, they would have been Jews, many of them would be of the Pharisaical bent, and they would have gotten saved, but they were used to the old ways. They were used to what the Pharisees used to practice, the righteousness, which is an outward righteousness, and doing the works. And they thought the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, was the standard for how they were to live because that brought to them righteousness, and they were mistaken because the Old Testament was never intended to bring righteousness, the Old Testament law. And so... Paul and the leaders in Corinth were constantly having this thorn in their flesh of these Judaizers coming into the church in Corinth and making a disruption. And they would do so by trying to get their way. They would bring letters uh, from other leaders in Jerusalem, and those letters would state their bona fides, so to speak, their PhDs, their background, their heritage. And then they, because of these letters, should be trusted by those to whom they would uh, come in contact with the leadership inside the church, and they were bringing these letters in order to be commended uh, to those who w- that they would um, show themselves to so in second Corinthians chapter three verse one, he says, "Are we beginning to commend ourselves again?" In other words, they had to Paul had to reestablish himself and those who were with them to the church in Corinth because there were those who were causing division. It says, Or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? For yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by everybody. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone but on tablets of the human hearts. And so, as I said, these Judaizers were plaguing the Corinthian leadership and throwing them into confusion, and they were trying to lead the church in Corinth backwards towards the practices of Judaism, the Old Testament law, like you need to keep some of these things in the Old Testament law. They wanted to do things the old way. They wanted the things that had always been done the way that they had been done before. They wanted the rituals. They wanted the festivals. They wanted the sacrifices. They were legalistically minded and they would have brought letters from some back in Jerusalem to buttress their point that they have some type of authority. And of course Paul said by just the fact that you exist in Corinth you are the letters that Paul would need because I'm sure these Judaizers were showing up to the leaders in Corinth saying, "Well, where's Paul's letters? How come he doesn't have anything like we have? See, we have these things written out for you to see. And the fruit of the ministry of Paul was recommendation enough. Now, these written letters are useless when it comes to God's approval. <clears throat> Judaizers were attempting to build on another man's foundation. They, they took these letters. They came into the work that Paul had already established And they said, okay, now we need to take this a little further. These Judaizers' desires to exercise control, they might not have been the leaders, but they wanted to influence the leaders in the church. It would have been like somebody coming into the church, and whoever the leaders were, they would pull the leaders to the side, and they would whisper in their ear, well, don't you think this ought to be done? And, you know, this is my opinion of what you should actually do. And they would probably go through one by one the leaders that were there try to changing, or trying to change their mind. And if they didn't get what they wanted, they would cause trouble. They would cause division. And they would start to complain. They would start to want to direct different activities. They would talk behind the scenes to exercise pressure. And ultimately, they would, like I said, bring about division inside the church. So there'd be all of these factions, and this was evident in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12, where Paul says, one of you says, I follow Paul, another I follow Apollos, another I follow Cephas, still another I follow Christ. And so that's what these Judaizers were doing. They were obviously making attempts to discredit Paul and exalt themselves inside the church. They would piggyback on a ministry of another to try to move in, but Paul always desired to start a ministry where there had been none in the past. This happens on a regular basis where somebody will go out and start a work and they'll infiltrate uh, maybe somebody who is already there. They, they have their own agenda or uh, they want to build on this other person's foundation and, like I said, take it over. Uh, they don't go alone. And that's what Paul did. Paul would go alone with nothing at all. Several books have been written about uh, doing this. And even Paul said in Romans chapter 15, verse 20, it has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. And so that's what the Judaizers did. And whenever somebody does that, you must be weary of them. Now, A lot of times when people are doing this in the modern-day church, if they don't get what they want, if they don't succeed, they move on to another church and they try to do that very same thing. And when confronted about that, they'll just go from church to church to church. You couldn't do that back in the New Testament times. When you were in a church, that was the church in the city. That was it. There was either the pagan temples, the Jewish synagogue, or the church. And you didn't get a chance to go to the Methodist or the Baptist or the Catholic or the Episcopalian or the Calvary Chapel. You didn't get a chance to just switch to another place. And, of course, that created problems. And then a person would have to go to another city in order to do that. And that's what these Judaizers did. They would go from city to city if they weren't successful, if they never repented of what they were trying to do. So verse 3 says, you show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone but on tablets of the human heart. Now, what Paul is doing here is he's making a connection between or a comparison and actually a contrast between the Old Testament law and the New Testament law, the Old Testament covenant and the New Testament covenant. Now, what I did is I went through, I think it's verses 5, or excuse me, uh, 3 through ten, eleven. And on each one of these sections, Paul speaks about the Old Testament law and the New Testament law. And I'll give a summary. I'm going to read through it first and then go back through it. It says in verse 4, such confidence as this is ours through Christ before God. Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. Now, just by way of explanation, the competence that the Judaizers brought were the letters It was something of the written letter, the written code, so to speak. That's where their confidence came from. Uh, Verse 6 says, He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, not of the letter of the law, but of the Spirit, being indwelt with the Spirit in the New Testament, in the new covenant, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now with the ministry that brought death, which is the law, which was engraved on letters of stone came with glory so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory fading, though it was. Will not the ministry of the Spirit being even, be even more glorious? So there's glory in the Old Testament covenant and glory in the New Testament covenant. If the ministry, verse nine, that condemns men is glorious, how much more glorious is a ministry that brings righteousness? So he's talking about the Old Testament which condemned human beings and the new Testament, which brought righteousness for what was glorious has no glory. Now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what is fading away came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts. So you see the comparison, the contrast between the old Testament and the new Testament. There was the old covenant, new covenant, the letter kills, the spirit gives life, the ministry that brought death. And then there's a ministry that brought life life of the Spirit. There's the letter which was written on stone and the letter which is written in our hearts. And it came with glory, excuse me, the Old Testament, the Old Covenant came with glory, though fading. And the glory which never fades is in the New uh, Covenant, the New Testament. Ministry that condemns men is in the Old Testament. Ministry that brings righteousness is in the New Testament. So he makes all of those comparisons there. He says the law became the standard of the requirements of God the law never made anyone righteous or good the law only condemned the law spoke of unrighteousness and failure the law with its rituals and practices though it was glorious only brought death now why was the old testament so glorious if it brought death if you think about the old testament They were constantly offering sacrifices, hundreds if not thousands in single days on special festivals. And there was blood flowing from the temple down into the Kidron Valley. And there was smoke burning all the time and part of the flesh would be completely burned up. It was not like a barbecue, but it was more like an inferno on that altar. They just kept on burning and burning and burning. And then they would take some of the meat away for the priest. And, and that's how God had set it up. But it spoke of the justice of God, that God has to judge sin because of these sacrifices. It spoke of the perfection of God, that He had a standard which was so high that really nobody could achieve. It spoke of the power of God, Mount Sinai and the clouds and the thunder and the pillar and the Red Sea and the glowing of the face of Moses. All of that was spectacular, the glory of that. And it laid the foundation for how loving God was, which is in the New Testament. Not that it wasn't in the Old Testament, but it's really personified in the New Testament. And it showed his love, how he rescued us from sin and heartache and condemnation and despair and death in the Old Testament to give us forgiveness and hope and joy and life in the New Testament. So you see the difference there? And God said, through Jeremiah that he would do this with a new covenant. In Jeremiah 31, verse 31, says, The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. So God revealed himself through tablets written on stone. He revealed himself through the writings of Moses. God now reveals himself through you. It's not just the New Testament that he reveals himself. When you go out to a job or to the marketplace or you're just hanging out you take a vacation or whatever the case might be there are unbelievers everywhere imagine that most of the world is perishing they're everywhere everywhere you look there are unbelievers and when they say you you don't bust out the bible and start reading to them you have the law of god written on your heart you know what god requires of you because god has placed it there and he says that In Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31 and beyond. And unbelievers, they don't read the Bible. They read you. They read me. They, They will take an example from you of what you do or what you don't do. Now, all of you can think of examples, hopefully, where somebody has turned to you and they've either, in a condemning fashion, said, oh, you think you're holier than thou, not because you're condemning them by your behavior or said something to them to bring condemnation because they're already self-condemned but it's because you are the light remember those who have the light on the inside you reek of the stench of death to those who don't have life and whenever you act like christ they're reminded and they don't know this really right out front in their subconscious so to speak in their spirit they know that they are in error they're going the wrong way, that there is death, there's condemnation, their behavior isn't quite right. And you show up and you say, well, this is wrong. And they say, well, who says it's wrong? You? Are you the final authority? And see, they'll read you and what your response is. Uh, you know, uh, I was listening to a pastor, and he was talking about the Bible, and afterwards a uh, couple came up. It was two women. They were a gay couple. And they said, what do you think about homosexuality? And, of course, did he start out by saying, well, God condemns it. No, he he didn't do that. He started out by saying, you know, God loves the homosexual just like he loves the drunkard, just like he loves this one who is a thief, just like he loves the one who is a liar. God loves everyone. But then after a few minutes, they got into it a little bit, just, explaining what the Bible has to say. And And the couple asked him, so what do you think about homosexuality? And he goes on to say, what I think doesn't matter. It's what God says is what matters. So I would point you to what God says. And of course, they parted after that and they weren't satisfied with the response. But the world is like that when it gets pointed out to them what God's requirement is then there is condemnation that comes from that and they either just want to completely reject it or they repent. So unbelievers, they don't read the Bible. We are the Bible to them. We're supposed to live it out. We are Christians. We are little Christs which are out there. You know, Jesus is the Word of God, capital W. And we are also the Word of God, the small case not in the sense that we are deity but in the sense that we reveal God by who we are and how we live. People, unbelievers and believers read us like a book. They will come to you and they'll make judgments. When you meet somebody for the first time you you know, uh, you've heard the saying you only make one first impression and you only get one chance for that first impression and how are you going to conduct yourself when you meet somebody for the first time? And then after that how do you conduct yourself? But People, unbelievers and believers, they'll read us like a book, and do we reveal Christ, or do we reveal our sinful selves? When you drive, do you reveal your righteousness, or your sinful self when you drive? Just this morning on the way here, somebody made the wrong turn and they got upset, but they were at fault, but they honked at the person that had the right of way, and and you could just see how there can be instances that would bring about the sin in our lives, just bubble it to the surface, and we are supposed to make sure that we are reflecting Christ. Now, verse 4, going back, he says, such confidence as this is ours in Christ before God, not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. Paul was not referring to human skill or to recommendations. He had no confidence in the flesh or its accomplishments. In Philippians chapter 3, verses 3 through 8, he says, "...for it is we who are of the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh." Though I myself have reason for such confidence, if anyone else thinks he has reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. So if he wanted to refer to his bona fides, the the recommendations that he would have, the accomplishments, uh, the degrees behind his name, he could have done so. But he says, but whatever was to my profit, I c- now consider loss for the sake of Christ. So he was at the pinnacle of his Pharisaism or however you want to say it, being a Pharisee. He was right up there at the top. Nobody surpassed him whatsoever. He had everything down, every jot and tittle, uh, crossed and dotted. You know, that's the cross of a, a T and a dot of an I, so to speak. It's a little bit different in the Hebrew, but that's what it refers to. And so he had some skill in the flesh, but he never appealed to that. He was a brilliant man, but he considered himself a bondservant. A slave. The lowest of the low is what he considered himself after he came to know Christ. And in second Corinthians chapter eleven, I'm not going to read it because we're going to eventually get there. He starts talking like a fool and he admits that I'm talking like a fool all of the things that he has done and he has accomplished just because there are those who are coming into the church at Corinth expressing everything that they had done, everything they had experienced, everything that they had accomplished that was for the kingdom of God and that was supposed to be their recommendation to the people inside the church. And Paul was not willing to do that. Paul could have offered a boast like the Judaizers but he chose instead to speak of his weakness. Now, I don't know about you, but I listen to a lot of uh, videos, biblical. Uh, I listen to atheists and Christians debating. I I like to be up on what is out there in the culture and what is being taught by other pastors and teachers. And sometimes when you have individuals brought in to uh, do a sermon or give a, a talk on something... They always talk about, I'm going to use this word for the third time, the bona fides. Uh, these are the credentials, the reputation, the standing, the accomplishments that somebody has. When I was in uh, junior college and I was wrestling in junior college, I had this counselor. Uh, he would be the counselor for the whole team. He would just show up and he'd ask how everybody's doing. And he once sent me a letter. And with my name, he wrote behind the name all these Three letter accomplishments. There were like six of them afterwards. Like a a BS in science, a PhD, you know, uh, RN, all these different things behind my name. And that was on the front of the letter. Of course, he was making a joke. I hadn't done any of those things at that time but there will be somebody who comes up to speak and they list all of their accomplishments, their credentials of PhD, they've traveled the world, they've spoken here, they've gotten the Nobel Peace Prize or whatever the case might be so that you might look at them and say, ah, we can have confidence in that individual and that's what the world does. You know, my, my pastor, Dave Riley, he is Dr. Dave Riley and you would never know it that he was Dr. Dave Riley. And before him, my pastor was Mike McIntosh. He's Dr. Mike McIntosh. But you'll never see them put doctor out there. They went through just to get the benefit of going through whatever it is they're going to teach in the seminary and they did their dissertations and you would never know that that's in fact who they are and who they have been for quite some time. So... It can be a bit tiresome that we look to that. We say, well, that makes you acceptable. That makes you of a good recommendation or of a good report to me. And speaking from a worldly standpoint, that is good. But Paul is saying, I'm not going to give you any of that. You guys are my PhD. You guys are the accomplishment. You guys are my recommendation because you are a result of the ministry So some of the most intelligent people in the world, you know, they have all these degrees behind them, double PhDs. How has that been with the COVID-19? Have they made great decisions for us? You know, some of the people that seem to be so educated, so experienced, have led us down so many wrong trails, so many wrong paths, and has caused so much destruction. But they're the the wise ones the one with the recommendation, the one with the credentials, the one with the accomplishments. And so it's not the outward flesh that we should be looking to, but it would be the inward spiritual life that we would see evidence of. That's what we want to go to. So it is not the accomplishments of the flesh, but the life lived in the spirit that is the testimony that we are to look to. Someone has said that we get our security, our self-worth through our accomplishments rather than By knowing what God thinks of us. And that's where we're supposed to remain satisfied. God looks at us and says, you're mine. And when he does that, we're to rest in that. Not thinking that we have to prove something to somebody else. You know, the the way to the cross, the way up is down. And the way down is up. I'm sure you've heard that before. When you become meek and lowly, God can use that. But when we become prideful and elevated in our own mind, God detests that because God himself is humble. And all of his servants that he has used have been humble, even Moses. There was no one who was more humble on the face of the earth. And who did more, led more people at one time than Moses? He led millions of people uh, through his life and, and brought them. And they brought them out of Egypt and they became god's people the wife of god now going back in verse six it says he has made us competent as ministers of the new covenant not of the letter but of the spirit for the letter kills but the spirit gives life so this is the old testament versus the new testament the old covenant versus the new covenant now with the ministry that brought death which was engraved in letters of stone came with glory so that the israelites could not look steadily at the face of moses because of its glory, fading though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? So Moses, you know, it, it had this glory to it, this old covenant, the the law under Moses, but that law, just like his face, was fading. The Old Testament law has faded away. It was fulfilled by Jesus Christ, but we have to recognize that the old testament practices you know this this last week i actually had some lobster and it was good it was really good to eat that lobster but if i was a jew that would be prohibited for me to eat that lobster and there are some christians that would say or they purport to be christians you cannot eat shrimp you cannot eat oysters. You cannot eat shellfish. You can only eat those things which have scales. No calamari. Uh, you cannot actually have anything that has polyester and cotton in it. Did you know that? And There, there are some people that uh, they hold uh, to a particular view. You know, I'll, I'll save that for a, a moment later. I'm going to get into that. But it's this idea of practicing the Old Testament... When you're in the New Testament, the Old Testament, its glory has faded away. Verse 7 says, Now if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved on letters of stone, came with glory so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because it was fading, though it was, it, it, it was going away. So people get confused about that, and they look at the Old Testament, and they say, well, which one of the Ten Commandments do you want us to get rid of? And they'll say, well, tear that one out. You know, like the common one is the Sabbath. Get rid of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was yesterday. It's not today. And, of course, that's why the Seventh-day Adventists say, you need to practice the Sabbath on the Sabbath, on Sabado, on Saturday, not on Sunday. Sunday is the first day of the week for the Jews. If you went over to Israel today, it's it's like their Monday for us. They just go to work and they do whatever they need to do. But the Sabbath... People who are Christians will say, well, you need to practice the Sabbath. Not only the Seventh-day Adventists, but there are others who are out there that think we need to be more like Jews that practice the Sabbath. But which part of the Old Testament do you want to get rid of? And it's the ceremonial law that has faded away. Not the moral law, and even the civil law. Now, there are certain things in the civil law that they dealt with in the Old Testament. You know, most of us don't have bowls that get out and destroy something and that was the civil and legal law which was back there so that really doesn't apply to most of us here but certainly the ten commandments those are also a civil law unto themselves when it deals with us dealing with other people the last five of the commandments and not us dealing with God and that's the moral law which is there we're to honor God in the first four commandments five commandments which are there And so this Old Testament is fading away, but it's the ceremonial law, the festivals and all of that, that have faded away. And this new glory has emerged. It's the ministry of the Spirit. In the Old Testament, it was the letter that kills. In the New Testament, it's the ministry of the Spirit. The Old Testament could not fix us. And they thought, the Jews thought, that it could fix you. If you followed the law, if you did everything, if you strained out a gnat that was in your water or in your drink, you would be righteous and God would look at you as somebody who is righteous because of what you did. And the Old Testament law, it killed us. Like, for instance, if there were no motor vehicle laws, none of us would get a ticket, none of us would ever have to go to court. We would not be guilty of anything. But then they wrote laws. Remember the law used to be you could not make a U-turn unless it was posted? And they changed the law decades ago to where you can now make a U-turn on any intersection except that which is prohibited where it's posted. You cannot do that. And so the law was changed in that respect. And so the law comes along and it condemns us and we have to pay for it whenever we break the law and there are so many laws now I'll bet you are sitting here breathing you're breaking some kind of law and, and you have to be aware of that you've done something wrong probably on the way here maybe you did something environmentally wrong that you should not have done you violated something today already obviously because there are so many laws and that was the Old Testament and God tried to keep it in the Ten Commandments and the New Testament he put it in the two commandments if we follow the two commandments and we hold to the spirit of the law that's it love god with all your heart mind soul and strength and love your neighbor as yourself and if you're guided by the spirit you'll always do that and so you don't need all of that old testament law the law was like a mirror now i don't know about you but in our house we have you go into the master bath and you have a mirror That's in front of you. And you look at that and as, you know, you can see I wear glasses and, and so the closer I get, the blurrier it gets, which is to my benefit. But, but there is a problem because right next to that mirror, which is in front of me, if you turn immediately to the left, we have a magnifying mirror. And you look in that mirror and you go, Oh, what, what is that? And you start, I gotta fix that, whatever that thing is on there. And, and, but the mirror doesn't fix it. The mirror just tells you what's going on with your face. And you think, this is not good. You know, as you get older, you say it's not good. Well, well, there's something else. I give a demonstration here. This that I have in my hand. I asked my wife if she knew what this was this morning. She goes, it's a weight, like a fishing weight. Well, they do make fishing weights that look similar to this, but this is called a plum a plum bob is what this is. This is used in construction and if you If you had something up here uh, on the ceiling and you said, "You know what? I want to put a post directly over that like at one time, we thought about making an overhang coming through these uh, doors, these double doors, where we could have some storage or whatever we wanted to up top there. And if we built the structure out and we wanted to to be parallel and right in line with some structures on the roof, like, for instance, wherever you see these pillars right here, there is a large girder that goes across. It's made of metal. And what if we wanted to be right under that? Well, you would take this, You would hold this up to the ceiling and it would go directly down where we needed to put a post. It's called a plumb. And if you put a post in for a patio or something like that, you want to make sure that the post is straight. That's how you find out if it's straight. You use a plumb bob. This comes from well before the Egyptians. Everybody knew how to use one of these and you hang the string on it and however tall it is, you can get the exact point which it comes down. Now, what if... The post is not straight. This will not fix it. That's the law. When you looked at the law, it didn't fix anything. It just said it's either true or it's not true. And the law killed. So when you looked at the law, it said you are under condemnation. That's all it did. And if the person looked at the law in the Old Testament in the proper way, they would immediately ask the question, what am I supposed to do? And the law says, you're still dead. You haven't done anything. You can't do anything. You're dead. So it's the mirror. It's the plumb bob. It's the law. And in the New Testament, it's different. Because the New Testament is the remedy. The New Testament is is the hammer, it's the saw, it's all of those things that are necessary for us to become righteous in the eyes of God. But the Judaizer said, no, we need the plumb bobs, we need the mirrors. Because if we do those things that are pointed out to us in the Old Testament, then we'll be righteous. And Paul was constantly fighting against this. Now, for instance, in the book of Galatians, The Galatian church, they had the Judaizers there. They were in Philippians, they were in Colossians. Paul was dealing with these guys everywhere. They were in the book of Hebrews, and they're here in our text. And and they wanted everybody to be circumcised in order to be righteous. And you've heard me say this before, Paul wished that they would miss with the knife, so to speak. That's what he said, and he said it in railing sarcasm when they wanted to impose circumcision. And so it eventually led to Paul going in Acts chapter 15 to Jerusalem and having a consultation with the apostles who were there in Jerusalem. And, of course, we have all of that in Acts chapter 15. So going on in verse 9, "...if the ministry that condemns men is glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory." What if, excuse me, and if what is fading away came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? So the law was temporary, was meant to be so, and the New Testament, the life in the Spirit, is eternal. Verse 12 says, Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses who would put a veil over his face to keep the Israelites from gazing at it while the radiance was fading away. But their minds were made dull. For to this day, the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now, there's a few people I like to listen to. Uh, One of them is Dennis Prager. Uh, Prager U. he has these short five to six minute videos and they're dealing with cultural issues moral issues of the day and all of them are just excellent they are so good that YouTube has banned I think over 100 of them doesn't want them on there because it might feel or make somebody feel inadequate or it might hurt their feelings and so they have taken them off another person I'd like to listen to is Ben Shapiro I think he would make a good president uh, not this time around, but maybe then next time around, I don't know. But if you listen to them, the guy, he is so smart. I, I, I can't even keep up with a sentence. I have to pause and listen to what he said and just go, wow, that was deep, you know, and he's so young. And it, it, he went to Harvard Law School and, and he said, you know, when he was going to these liberal universities, Uh, because there is somebody asked him a question, well, what do you do? Because if you write according to your conservative beliefs, then they're going to mark you down, and you might not even graduate, because there's such a dislike, a disdain for you and your views. And he said when he was in the universities, he wrote like he was Lenin. But when he got out, uh, he's doing the work that he's doing now. And, of course, he has just left California, I think, for Tennessee or Kentucky, one of the two. But I, I listened to him, and he's really good. Another one is Charlie Kirk. I listen to Charlie Kirk, and and they have for our culture. I, I do it for cultural purposes to kind of keep my finger on the pulse of where we are culturally. And there are others uh, that I'll listen to, but two in specific: the Dennis Prager and um, the UCLA. <laughs> Not Charlie Kirk. The guy I just said before, Ben Shapiro thank you it's that old thing you know i can't <laughs> so ben shapiro and dennis brigger i like to listen to those guys but both of them are devout jews and they are so smart how can you not see like for instance dennis brigger he's writing a commentary on the first five books of moses or the five books of moses and he he is a rabbi he understands the old testament But he doesn't see Christ as Messiah in the Old Testament. And he holds to his Judaism. Same thing with Ben Shapiro. And and, and I got some insight as to why he doesn't and the way he interprets uh, the scriptures. But I'm thinking to myself, why don't they see? Well, the answer is in just what we read. There is a veil they cannot see. And it's because of the curse of rejecting the Messiah. But there is a time where they will be able to see. And the whole country of Israel, the ones who practice Judaism, they have a veil in front of them. Now, you remember when Jesus was crucified, the veil that was in the temple ripped from top to bottom. And some scholars say that, you know, the old veils, they would wear out. They were cloth. They were material. And so they they wouldn't do anything with that cloth or material except sew it inside the new one. So they'd make a new one. They'd sew the old one on the inside. And they'd keep on doing that over the decades to where that veil, it wasn't this thick. It could be like this thick or even thicker. And that was held up. It, It would be like this curtain here only... It was in the temple, what was it, uh, 20, 40 feet high? I don't know how high it was. It was way up there, and it ripped from top to bottom, opening the veil to where we had free access with God, but the veil still remains for the Jew. They cannot see that Jesus is the Messiah. And I've talked to Jews before, and for instance, in the Jewish Seder, they have what's known as the Afikomen, In the afikomen, it's uh, three pieces of matzah, and there's a special container that they have for it. Uh, There's three compartments for three pieces of, uh, of the bread that's in there, and they take the one in the middle, they break it, they put it back inside, and they get rid of the other one, and they hide it is what they do. Now, if you are familiar with the Trinity, you have the Father, you have the Holy Spirit, you have the Son, who is the bread of life, whose life was broken. He, w- he went and hid away, and the other was, uh, excuse me, one was hidden away, and the other was placed back inside of the quote-unquote Trinity which was in there, and he dwells with God. But at the end, they're supposed to go find it. They're supposed to go find that bread. And what happens at the end? Well, we see Jesus Christ. But they can't see that that speaks of Jesus Christ. They can't see that the tabernacle was a picture of Jesus Christ. Nothing to look at on the outside. See cow skins. That were on the outside, but in the inside it was blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and how there was the light of the world, the lampstand, and you had the showbread, the bread of life which was in there, and the altar of incense, the prayers of the saints, and you had the law of God, and you had the mercy seat of God. All of that speaks of Jesus Christ, the one who is merciful. He sits on the mercy seat but they couldn't see that they couldn't see that the shedding of blood pointed to jesus christ the lamb of god they couldn't see that the angel of death came in the doorpost and the lintel of the house they all had to be covered in blood in order to be saved And, and so all of that they cannot make that connection unless god reveals it to them because there are some jews who end up believing and they're called messianic jews but these Judaizers who came along, they may not have actually have been saved. They may have just pretended to be so, and they're still veiled in wanting to keep this Old, old Testament law. So the New Testament sets us free, but the Old Testament, uh, the word in the uh, Greek is pedagogos. It's a, a teacher, a taskmaster that was a teacher. You know, uh, If some of you went to... Um, catholic schools growing up i remember my neighbors they did they went to a catholic school and there was sister so-and-so and sister so-and-so had a yardstick and would walk around with a yardstick and if you did something wrong especially the boys they got hit with the yardstick and sometimes it would be with a ruler or their hands would be on the desk and they had wrap the the hands the knuckles with the ruler if they were wrong and i can remember in secular school if you did something wrong you could be spanked you could be taken of course that would be child abuse today but you could be spanked in junior high it's middle school now but in junior high and in high school they didn't do it so much but junior high they definitely did it and there were people who walked out of there young kids that walked out of there with red eyes because they had been crying because they've been smacked so hard you know and that is the old testament it it condemns us it makes us be a slave and then there is no remedy for the slavery in the old testament but going on we have this hope now the lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the lord is there is freedom and we who with unveiled faces all reflect the lord's glory see what i was saying about you are the ones that reflect jesus christ and we are being transformed into his likeness with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So we are transformed, and the word transformed here is our, what we use in English, metamorphosis. Now, I don't know if you remember the old film strips or the movies that you would see in school and the chrysalis, the butterfly, the monarch would come up and it would, uh, actually the worm would come up and it would turn into a chrysalis and the chrysalis would allow the monarch butterfly to come out and they would fly away. It was changed from a worm into a butterfly and how that happened and when you crack those things open it's just a bunch of liquid. There's nothing to it at all and that becomes a butterfly. You go, They liquefy and they become something new. That's what's happening to us. And it's from the inside out. And eventually, we'll be like the butterfly as well. So we are being transformed. This is called sanctification. Now, we are sanctified. We are set apart for the purposes of God. That is a positional sanctification. He just takes us and says, okay, you're mine right there. But there's also this sanctification where we walk every single day in the newness of life, and not that we try to perfect our flesh. And that's what people think sanctification is. Just get better at living. Just get better at doing things right. That's not it. It's the perfecting on the inside. It's the battle on the inside. The things that you want to do are not the things that you do. And the things you don't want to do, those are the very things that you do. And it's because the battle is on the inside. are you regularly practicing when a thought comes in that the flesh just loves? Do you go, no, and you take out your sword and you just slice and dice that cut and stamp on it? Is that what you do? Or do you pick it up like a little sparkly globe and go, do you pay attention to that? And God says, no, destroy it. You don't want to hold on to that thing. When I was growing up, occasionally we'd get these things called fireworks, cherry bombs. You know what cherry bombs are? Oh, it's red. It has this green fuse. Oh, but when the thing's lit, you don't want to hold on to it. You want to get rid of it, right? Why? Because it's going to cause some destruction if you hold on to that thing. Then we got M80s and seal chasers, and then we did things that nobody should do. And, you know... It's those types of things that God says, no, don't. And that's the process of sanctification. It's where on the inside our will submits to God and we say, okay, God, I'm going to do what you want, even though my flesh says, no, don't do it. And God's saying, you can do this. I'm giving you the power. And that's where the struggle is. That's the sanctification that we're supposed to be living by. So applying all of this, if we look back over this chapter... We're to be weary of those in the church who use recommendations from others rather than the emulations of Christ, rather than having what they do be their letter of recommendation. They're relying on others to give the recommendation. Because let's face it, everybody in the church is a sinner. And the propensity to sin is always with us. And the propensity to gain power and influence for some, it never leaves them. So it is by the works that you will know if they are truly a follower of Christ or if they are not, if they're a follower of their flesh. Uh, They make of themselves copies of Christ rather than bring copies of letters. Uh, Then also we are to be wary of those in the church who seek to have believers follow Old Testament practices and rituals. You know, there are certain sects of Christianity that would dictate how you dress, how many Bible studies you go to, which days you go to church, because if you don't, it could be a mortal sin, uh, which practices you adhere to uh, inside the church, and how often you take communion or how often you don't take communion. The Old Testament was and is inferior to the new testament as far as the practices are concerned the practice in the new testament is to follow the spirit of god the practice in the old testament was to bring sacrifices and if there are those who would say well you're not walking the christian life so to speak if you are on the inside you're walking the christian life because out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks also out of the abundance of the heart the body acts and that's how it happens. It doesn't mean you perfect the outside and hopefully it'll transform the inside. But there are those who will condemn you for not following their pre-prescribed uh, directions. Colossians chapter 2, verse 16 reiterates this. It says, Therefore do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are the shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. I was watching a video yesterday of a guy. He uh, found two Mormon elders, 19 and 20 years old, in a park. And they had their white shirts on and their ties and their little black and white name tags and he just wanted to have a conversation with them Uh, it wasn't real hard evangelical get these guys saved he just wanted to discuss with them what it is they believed and of course they talked about well we don't drink coffee or tea and i thought to myself those are one of the four food groups you know (laughs) coffee and tea but they don't drink any of that and it's like Do you think you're going to be perfected by not drinking any coffee or tea. It does nothing. What, what if it's decaf? Can you drink decaf? Uh, because there's caffeine and regular coffee. And, you know, I had my own questions when this was coming up, but it was just enlightening that there are certain acts that people think they need to follow to be righteous in the eyes of God. The acts are followed because you are righteous in the eyes of God because of the transformation that is on the inside. Also, we need uh, to understand that when the epistle was written, this particular epistle, Second Corinthians, there were still temple sacrifices being offered. And so when somebody got saved that was a Jew, they were so used to the sacrifices and the festivals and all of that, they thought, well, let's just bring those along. And ever since AD 70, there has not been a blood sacrifice for sin. And so what the Jews have done is they have said, well, if you just do good works and give money, that will suffice for the, uh, at the atonement of sin, which, of course, the Bible never says that. It's the rabbis who ended up writing about that. But there are still those in the Christian community, and this is what I was going to refer to e- uh, earlier, there are those in the Christian community, or they claim to be Christians, of the Hebrew Roots Movement. I don't know. I've run into a few of these guys. I think I've mentioned to you before uh, some of the things that they do. One of the guys that is in this, he actually sacrificed a lamb uh, two years ago on Passover, posted it on Facebook. Uh, he has the prayer tassels hanging from around his waist. There's two in front and there's two in back. And uh, he doesn't call pastors pastors. I, I asked him, I said, well, who's your pastor? And He goes, I don't have a pastor. I said, you don't have a pastor, but the scripture says that there are pastors. He goes, no, it doesn't. I'm, I said, well, God has ordained apostles, prophets, pastors, and teachers for the work of the ministry in, a, in the book of Ephesians. He goes, well, let's read it. And he pulled out this kind of Hebrew version of the Bible and it they're called shepherds. I said, Shepherds, pastors, oh, hey, you know what's What's wrong with you? It's a shepherd that has been appointed inside the church, and and you know just all kinds of problems. And he goes, no, I hold to One Nineteen Ministries. Now you can look them up. One Nineteen Ministries. You can look them up on gotquestions.org dot org as well. The Hebrew Roots Movement and the Some One Nineteen Ministries. And there's a lot of teaching that they have. And they would say, well you don't have to be circumcised in order to be saved, but we recommend you get circumcised. And and you don't have to follow these dietary laws to get saved, but we recommend you follow these dietary laws. Well, you don't have to follow these festivals in order to be saved, but we really recommend that you follow these festivals. And and we know you don't have to offer a lamb as a sacrifice, but we recommend that you offer a lamb as a sacrifice. It's like, what's the deal with that? And they forsake the New Testament church, and, and some of them even deny the Trinity. The one guy that I was talking to, I said, Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. He is deity in human form. And I started quoting to him uh, verses that deal with the deity of Christ, Titus 2.13, Romans 9.5, 1 John 5.20. And he wanted to argue with me about that. And this was done in front of some guys who wanted to hear the conversation. There was about four other guys there. And I, I took them to all these verses. And the guys immediately saw that he was not following what the New Testament had to say, that he was following a construct from the Old Testament, following the Old Testament law. And he was not the only one. And there was a couple other guys. Uh, he would ask him, oh, Where's your prayer tassels? Oh, they, they broke. And I said, Did you wear prayer tassels? And he goes, Yeah. I said, Well, does your shirt have polyester and cotton in it? You're making a mistake. If you're doing that, and did you go to the priest or rabbi to get approval uh, that you could fellowship again because maybe you had a skin rash at some particular point? You know, all of these things in the Old Testament and these groups of people will pick and choose what they want to follow just like the Jews of today. You don't have to have animal sacrifice. You just give money and do the good works. And so there will be people who will attempt to take you and put you in a mold and make sure you're following their dictates. And that's what Paul is preaching against. It's the Spirit who leads us. The Spirit of Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God. And you are not bound by the Old Testament law. Don't let somebody enslave you to it again. And by the Lord's grace and His goodness, we will avoid all this and speak against it. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word We thank you for the examples that Paul left to us, that we don't need recommendations for others or to others, that we simply need your recommendation. We need your approval. So, Father, just as a group here of believers, we turn to you. We ask that you would forgive us if we've ever tried to impose restrictions on others, saying that they are not up to snuff, And just because we are not satisfied. We would pray that we would all walk in the newness of life. Forgive us of our sins, Lord, for they are many. The older we get, the more we have. And we would ask, Lord, that you would help us to be purveyors. Those who carry your grace to others. That give your love freely without finding restrictions. So, Lord, help us to be an influence in a positive manner towards you. And even though we do this, we know that we will suffer persecution. But may all glory go to you. And may we decrease and may you increase. In Jesus' name. And the church said, Amen. Amen. Amen.